0: Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Thea Francos, Associate Professor of Political Science at Providence College and author of Resource Radicals, from Petro-Nationalism to Post-Extractivism in Ecuador. We discuss the findings of the IPCC's new report, whether it's possible to imagine a green transition within capitalist social relations, and how the left can chart a path to decarbonisation that doesn't compromise the Earth's other natural systems or communities. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of the show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornel West, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash aworldtowinpod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. Now here is Theoria Francos on how the left should respond to the findings of the IPCC's new report on climate breakdown.
1: Hello, Theoria Frankers, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today?
2: I'm doing okay, all things considered.
1: (laughs) Good. Yeah, considering the the news we've had this week, which I wanted to discuss with you today, because we've just seen, as you will know, the IPCC's new report showing a lot of things, but basically kind of uh, giving us unequivocal evidence. This is some of the strongest language they've used yet, suggesting that... A, greenhouse gas emissions are contributing to climate breakdown and that we are potentially reaching a series of tipping points if we don't take radical action to reduce emissions pretty quickly. So yeah, this is some of the strongest language we've seen yet. Do you think that we are finally going to see governments starting to take action, especially as we move into um, the kind of recovery from COVID-19, when we've got all these big infrastructure recovery packages coming down the line?
2: I totally agree that this report is even perhaps clearer than the past several IPCC reports in terms of the causes of the crisis and how dire it is, and also kind of spanning forward some of those tipping points. So the the report makes it clear that 1.5 degrees will be breached by 2040. We are just on that pathway. Uh, The report also makes it clear that if dramatic transformative policy action is taken, we can pull back from that cliff after we've actually breached it. So, you know, it, it sort of outlines the the state of the crisis, but also what's needed to address it. I I don't think that on its own, however, the report um, or any report is what compels policy action. For some policymakers, that might be true. There are you know enlightened technocrats out there that read reports and are like, now I must do something. But I think probably both you and I agree that it's the material conditions and the balance of class and other political forces that really either compels action or doesn't. And we're at a moment that I think it's, it's hard to judge exactly that balance of political forces, partly because of the ways that the pandemic has kind of scrambled politics in some ways and in other ways, deeply just entrenched inequality, right? So it's kind of changed some things, but also exacerbated and worsened other things. So I think that it's a tricky moment to kind of ascertain the exact balance of power in in the affluent and large economies that are most vital in terms of dramatically decarbonizing. What we will need, in my view, is not just a report, but disruptive social movements that use sources of leverage like strikes and protests and demonstrations and direct action to really force the issue. We also need progressive policymakers, right? So I think it's not just enough, though it's vitally important, to have a really strong kind of resistance movement. You also need policymakers that you can directly talk to and collaborate with. Like we need, you know, and, and just put it more We need socialists in office, we need leftists in office, we need people in the halls of state power that can help translate that social movement energy into concrete policy proposals. On the other hand, and this is harder for the left to to directly control, we need like fractures in among the elite. We need, you know, for so many years in the US, and I think, you know, we can say similar things about the UK and Europe. There's been sort of a bipartisan consensus of climate denial and delay. I know that we like to say, like, oh, it's just the right wing that denies climate change. It's not true. Anything that any politician that doesn't understand the scale of the crisis and isn't putting forward policies to address it is, in my view, a climate denier. And so that bipartisan consensus has just been has ruled uh, for for many decades. We are seeing some cracks in it. We're seeing left wing Democrats in the U.S. like make bolder statements, but we need to crack through that hegemony, right? Um, And some of that is about social movements, some of that's about leftists in office, and some of that is about fragmentation within the ruling class as well.
1: Can you imagine a a green transition that maintains capitalist social relations? You know, it's often said that we're not going to see decarbonization within capitalism, but that looks increasingly, I suppose, optimistic when put forward by some socialists. And what do you think the implications or the contours of a, a capitalist transition to net zero would be?
2: Yeah, this this is like a longstanding debate among eco-socialists, among eco-Marxists, among leftists that are really concerned with the planetary climate emergency. And there have certainly been those that argued that a renewable energy transition and full decarbonization is impossible under capitalism. So the kind of accelerating contradictions between capitalism and the necessity for that green transition would itself potentially like propel a revolutionary conjuncture. I agree with your assessment that that while it kind of sounds very cynical and nihilistic because it's, it's very, you know, negative on capitalism's ability to transition its energy bases. It is also in a way optimistic and maybe idealistic that we're in anything close to approaching a revolutionary situation, um, again, in those you know large economies that account for the vast majority of, of carbon emissions. So I think that kind of makes us think more carefully about the transition as itself a political train, right? And so instead of thinking in these kind of binary terms like either capitalism or socialism and that there's going to be like a revolutionary rupture in between them or either fossil fuel capitalism, or you know, something green and humane in its place with again, no transition between it, I think is, is a binary and simplistic way of thinking. What we're seeing to varying degrees is an energy transition that is unfolding unevenly across the world. And involves both capital and the state. I think in new and interesting, and I mean this analytically. There's definitely a political risk here, which I'll get to in a minute. But but you know, from an analytic perspective, new and interesting combinations of state action and um, and capitalist investment that are, to varying degrees, uh, resulting in a renewable energy transition and decarbonization of sectors of the economy. Not nearly as fast as we need it to, but it's happening. And I and I agree with you that that is undeniable. So we're getting something like the beginnings of green capitalism with a tremendous amount of state help. States are taking directly developmental roles in stimulating new green technology sectors and new green energy sectors, in attracting investment to them, in making that investment um, more appealing, less risky, etc. So we see this kind of visible hand of the state really stimulating these, these, this new green capitalist economy that's emerging. And so what is to be done for socialists, and also what are, as you said, kind of the risks of the, the consolidation of green capitalism. Because while it's altogether possible that with the law of value and accumulation in place, we can reduce emissions, I think that, that there's no contradiction necessarily between those two things. A lot of what continues to cause environmental destruction would be left in place under such a green capitalist system and in addition the deep social inequalities and labor exploitation and forms of marginalization would also be left in place. So we can sort of foresee the possibility of capitalism adjusting itself to some aspects of the climate crisis, especially those that open up new possibilities for investment and markets while leaving in place and maybe actually exacerbating other causes of environmental harm and the whole kind of unequal social system in which they are embedded. And I guess I'll just kind of close this by saying that I think socialists need to take a kind of hard look at this transition moment that we're in. See not just the transition, but but the emergence of green capitalism itself as the terrain on which we are organizing, and also be very astute about the changing relationships between the state and capital and think of those also as objects of our political analysis, but also as targets of our political action.
1: Even if we, you know, do start to see the beginnings of a kind of more progressive transition towards net zero, do you think that we'll be able to decarbonize quickly enough to avoid these tipping points? This was a big thing in the recent IPCC report is that if we don't really start to take action very quickly, we start to see natural carbon sinks basically become kind of saturated. And at that point, you start to see a substantial increase in the amount of greenhouse gas emissions entering the atmosphere. So we need to avoid these tipping points. Can we decarbonize quickly enough in order to do that without affecting other ecological systems, or potentially displacing communities or having kind of other negative impacts? What are the really tough decisions that are going to have to be made there? Um, And how can those of us on the left think about mechanisms through which inevitable divisions of interest between different communities will arise in the the process of this transition?
2: Yeah, there are a lot of thorny dilemmas in that transitional period that we are in in the beginnings of, and that I would say is probably the kind of parameter of our of our politics for the next at least decade, let's say. I mean, I hate to make predictions, but this seems like you know we're, we're entering a multi-year process of transition and of new types of political conflicts that will accompany it. Some I've, I've already noted, which is maybe a macro level potential confrontation between like an eco-socialist or, or more left-wing version of climate politics and this kind of state capital hegemonic or becoming potentially hegemonic version of a green capitalist transition, but that's at a macro scale. I think it's also worth, as you're suggesting, getting into the nitty gritty of where other types of political conflicts might arise, some of which pose, I think, real challenges for the left and that we should lean into, think about what those challenges are and start to come up with a policy program and political strategy that addresses them. So there are two that I'll name. One will probably be very familiar to listeners. One might be newer, but familiar to some. Um, So the first is conflicts over the siting of renewable energy generation. And so that was a lot of wonky language. But basically, the renewable energy system, it's not like we just directly access renewable energy, right? We need to actually set up infrastructures to capture it, to harness it, and to distribute it for human use. And those infrastructures require land use, um, require physical things that are built in particular places, right? Whether it's a solar farm, whether it's a wind farm, or whether it's the transmission lines that themselves are becoming sites of political controversy. Um, We need much more transmission in order to connect the places of renewable energy generation, which are kind of geographically specific. You can't have a wind farm everywhere or a solar farm everywhere. You need the elements to align. And to connect those places with the places where industry and homes might use that energy. so we're seeing conflicts brewing now for the past several years in the US and, and maybe even more so in Europe where the energy transition is more advanced. We've seen conflicts between local communities that say I don't want this solar farm or wind farm or transmission line near me And I think it's complicated for the left to analyze this for for the following reasons. in some cases, I think those communities really do have valid grievances about green corporations. So again, back to green capitalism, green corporations coming in, uh, setting up enormous, you know, utility scale installations that might not be in harmony with the ecosystem, with existing livelihoods, you know, whether agricultural or or otherwise, um, with cultural attachments to place and just sort of like, blundering in and not not consulting the community in any way. The community has no democratic decision making and the profits all flow to the company um, and the energy is used far away, right? So in multiple ways, some of these communities just feel alienated by this process and, and angry by it. And I think each of those have, you know, a policy solution. I don't want to make it sound simple, but there are absolutely ways to consult communities more democratically, to get their consent, to get them to have real economic stakes in um, in the project, jobs, but also like you know dividends and, and other types of things. Other communities, I think, were, might be as leftists less sympathetic to the reason they don't want that wind farm, like it messes with the view of their fancy vacation home on the coast, right? And maybe we just say that's not a valid reason to oppose a wind farm, and then we have a different set of political strategies. To engage with that conflict, but I just want to sort of give a panorama of of these different types of conflicts over the land use for renewable energy generation. I'll go to a totally different part of the renewable energy supply chain, which is something that my research focuses a lot on right now, which is the mining and resource extraction required to manufacture these technologies in the first place. So what I've just talked about is really the, de- the deployment of technologies, like for example, a, a solar panel. Um, But that solar panel is made somewhere. It's made in a factory, probably not under ideal conditions, right? Given global capitalism. And it's also made with minerals that are wrested from the earth. Likewise, not under ideal social, environmental or labor conditions. What my work focuses on is lithium, which is needed for lithium batteries, which have a twofold importance in the renewable energy transition. They power electric vehicles, whether you know like a Tesla-type car or an electric bus or or truck, they also stabilize supply and demand on renewable energy grids by storing intermittent forms of energy. And it turns out, as I've discovered over the past couple of years of researching this, that lithium extraction is a pretty environmentally and socially fraught process, and really brings to the forefront this contradiction between fighting climate change on the one hand and protecting local ecosystems, livelihoods, and communities on the other. And I'm happy to speak more about, you know, what those tensions are and how we might address them. But that is a big and looming set of contradictions uh, uh, that that is really a specter over the entire energy transition, given the astronomical rates that, uh, that analysts predict that this m- mineral demand for lithium, cobalt, nickel, and other uh, minerals necessary for new energy technologies will increase over the coming decade.
1: We've seen President Biden announce this week that he wants to dramatically reduce the number of petrol and diesel cars sold in the US and replace them with electric vehicles. Do you think that this is a laudable aim or is this uh, going to be more of a problem given those resource constraints that you've just outlined?
2: It's, it's both. <laughs> and, and, you know, we have to get comfortable with the with contradictory statements in this moment. I think that you know, on the one hand, Biden's plan is not ambitious enough, right? I think that it's to decarbonize the, uh, the transportation sector by, by 50%, or, or to put it even more precisely with his executive order, that by 2030, 50% of cars sold in the U.S. will be electric. That is like almost half the ambition of the EU or China, right? Which say by 2035, I believe, 100% decarbonization of um, of of car, of you know, 100% only electric vehicles sold, 100% phase out of traditional combustion engines. So, so Biden looks about half of am- as ambitious as the other major economies. So that's one thing to put in mind. But on the other hand, you know, even Biden's less ambitious um, plans will will really dramatically increase the demand for the minerals that I was just describing. So what is to be done? This is like an ongoing policy problem and I don't want to suggest that there's like a perfect solution because I don't think that there is a perfect solution. And and I also don't think that coming up with the perfect policy idea is exactly how politics happens. The the demand for these minerals is going to unleash conflict, and policymaking uh, and uh, and uh, contention at, at a variety of scales in the global economy. And that's really how this will be worked out. But that all being said, I think as leftists, we have to have principles and clear ways to address this dilemma. The first thing that I would say is that while it's absolutely true that we need to fully decarbonize. The transportation sector and every other sector of our economy, but let's just talk about the transportation sector. We need to fully eliminate carbon emissions from it. The way in which we do that matters. There isn't just one pathway to decarbonizing the transportation sector, there are multiple. And what I'm concerned about, and this resonates with our discussion of green capitalism, is that a particular pathway is becoming hegemonic. And it is the most resource intensive pathway, the least equitable pathway. And also, paradoxically, the pathway that is slowest in terms of decarbonization. So it's bad, like in all ways, right? And so it's, it's, it, it makes it a little easier to critique and and and, um, and resist. So the reason that it's it's all of those bad things, more resource intensive, slower to decarbonize, and less equitable, is because it relies on a pretty familiar technology, but you know, with some major changes made to it, which is the individual passenger car, right? In the U.S., particularly we are an extremely car-dependent society, so much so that if you're too poor to afford a car in many cities and especially rural areas, you're out of luck for even getting yourself around. And so what Biden's plan does and the EU and China is say like, okay, we're going to replace every traditional car with an electric vehicle, and we're going to create this huge mass market for electric vehicles, and that's how we're going to decarbonize transit. The problem is, is that Passenger vehicles are, are actually like a really inefficient way to design your transportation system. Like most of the time, those vehicles are either sitting in a garage or sitting in traffic, right? They only transport a few people at a time at most. And each of them requires all of this, all of this resource extraction, but it's not benefiting that many people. And plus, it's highly unequal, as I just said, like if you're too poor to afford a car, like you don't have access to this transportation system. On the other hand, if instead we took this sort of critical juncture moment of an energy transition to not just change the type of fuel that powers these cars from fossil fuels to solar and wind and geothermal, but also thought about the whole system holistically and said, well, wouldn't it be better if we're going to take lithium out of the Earth? Then we can talk in a moment about how much lithium is actually needed. But to take lithium out of the Earth, it would be so much better to use it for an electric bus that cycles through a thousand passengers in an hour in a dense metropolitan area than a car where one person drives to work and it sits in a garage all day. Like it's a much more ecologically, but also socially rational use of the resources that we do need to extract from the earth. And in addition, it would make our whole transportation system much, much more equitable. So that's one thing I would say is a mass transit approach. In addition, there are already cities in Europe and and elsewhere that are experimenting with like car free cities that are experimenting and and during the pandemic this experimentation actually increased with more walkable streets right so thinking about the transportation system as a whole with the goal of reducing its resource intensity and making it more equitable and the last thing i'll say here i mentioned earlier that counterintuitively an ev approach though it might seem like the politically most easiest thing to do, right? Every, you know, like in the US, everyone loves cars, let's just give them EVs instead. It's actually not the most efficient way to decarbonize. That's just because a car-based transportation system involves many more vehicles on the road, and you have to swap out each of them. If we can sort of consolidate humans into fewer vehicles, and also some humans might be walking or cycling instead of a vehicle, then we have less to deal with overall. The logistical challenge is less complex and we can transition more quickly and decarbonize more rapidly.
1: Elon Musk famously tweeted recently that the US would coup whoever they wanted to get access to the lithium that they needed to, you know, do things like develop renewable energy and and build electric cars. What are the geopolitical implications of the race for lithium? The geopolitical
2: implications are pretty concerning. And I think, you know, though, Elon probably thought he was kind of making a joke in a way. It's serious. uh, And it's serious how much states and corporations are, in their own view, scrambling and in a race to secure what they call, quote, critical minerals. And it's interesting because the phrase critical minerals has a a military provenance. It, It dates to sort of mid-century World War II era, where states like the United States started to lock down storehouses of, of what they viewed as minerals that were crucial to the war effort, right? So even the phrase that is now used in the media and, and in policymakers and, and whatever has like kind of a military origin, and it's kind of not an accident, right? Because what I'm observing with lithium, but we could make parallel analyses for some other minerals as well, is that state actors and corporate actors, but maybe even more in the States, see these as like the new oil, Um, see them as strategically vital, as worth potentially engaging in conflict over, as worth securitizing by repressive means. And all of this is taking place in what's being called the, the, quote, new Cold War with China. So we see that green technology supply chains and very much so, their extractive frontiers, right—the the, the resource extraction required for them—are becoming these terrains of geopolitical competition and tension. And in fact, the EU and the US have like stated goals of decoupling from China, which I think is quite elusive, right? I mean, I don't actually think that's an achievable goal, but we'll put that aside for a moment. They see the energy transition as actually an opportunity to decouple from China and create domestic and regional supply chains um, that are supposedly independent um, from from the Chinese economy, right? So lithium batteries and lithium extraction and electric vehicles are like these sites of, of interstate competition. Some environmentalists of a certain sort might cheer this on and say, great, like the great powers are in competition with one another about who can decarbonize the fastest. And that's going to just like goad on, like, you know, a quicker energy transition. And I see the sort of basic logic to that. But I think that it ignores the real perils of a nationalist framing. It ignores the kind of, again, like elusiveness of, of actually disentangling, you know, rapidly disentangling the global economy in time to address the climate crisis, right? So if the U.S. were to prioritize everything must be made in America that would be problematic for actually decarbonizing in time, given how small these green sectors are in the US and how much larger they are in China and to a degree in in Europe. So I see not only risk um, of of new nationalism and of conflict and of stoking xenophobia, which we already have an enormous problem with in the world and we should not be contributing to, but I also see real logistical challenges for accomplishing an energy transition through the guise of a kind of new Cold War economic strategy.
1: Where do most of these critical minerals come from? And what are the costs associated with its extraction, not just the geopolitical implications we've just been talking about, but also for communities on the ground? They are really
2: all over the place. And it, you know we, we could look at the supply chains of, of each green technology and trace out the dozens of minerals that are required to make them. And so for simplicity... And because I know it best, I'm, I'm going to stick with lithium, but I want to just note that we could tell a really similar story with nickel, with cobalt, with rare earth. So lithium, contrary to this like imp- neo-imperialist kind of framing of this race to secure lithium, contrary to that, lithium is not exactly scarce and it's not so helpful to think of it as scarce. It's geologically relatively abundant in the earth's crust. The issue is, is that for many years it's been the extraction of it has been pretty concentrated in a few places. And also the overall market was was quite small, right? Because l- prior to this energy revolution moment, the main use of lithium has been in the rechargeable batteries of our, you know, electronic devices, right? So cell phones and laptops and and iPads and things like that. Now the market is, is set to grow uh, quite dramatically. In fact, the International Energy Agency in its recent report on critical minerals predicts that if we have a, a, a fast, energy transition, um, like as per all these stated policy goals in in different countries, we will see a 42 times, 42 times size larger lithium demand between 2020 and 2040, right? So 4,200% larger, like a really large increase. Um, Right now, lithium is primarily extracted from Australia, Chile, China, and Argentina, right? So it's relatively concentrated, as I said, in terms of its extraction, despite being relatively abundant. Now, the fact that it's abundant doesn't mean that every deposit is equally easy or profitable or feasible to extract. Um, but but what we see is that state actors um, in the US and in the EU and UK are looking into their own domestic and regional lithium reserves because they have them, right? So in the EU right now, Portugal is the largest lithium sector within, within the EU, but it's very small in global terms currently. It's like 1.5% of the global market. However, EU officials and, port, and the Portuguese government has its eye on a pretty massive expansion of the lithium sector in Portugal. Meanwhile, there are projects being proposed in Germany, in Serbia, in um, Cornwall, in the UK. There are projects being proposed in uh, new projects in Nevada, um, in North Carolina, and in California, in the United States. So what's interesting about lithium is that it very much, its extraction might might actually sort of expand dramatically into the, these global North economies um, that it hasn't traditionally been extracted uh, so much in. So that's the kind of just geographic overview. In terms of its environmental and social harms, it depends on the type of deposit, the landscape that is situated, it's always contextually specific. but let me speak a bit about the um, concerns in Chile, which is where I've done a lot of my field work thus far. Chile, as I mentioned, is a big major, big global producer of lithium. It's the second, it's second after Australia. About 30% of the global market is satisfied by Chilean lithium. It comes from the northern desert, the Atacama Desert, which is the second driest place on earth after some subregions in Antarctica. So it's a very dry desert it is therefore obviously quite water scarce and water vulnerable despite that fact um, you know deserts are places that are actually teeming with life life that has is very hardy and and can survive in those in those difficult elements so there are beautiful ecosystems and landscapes within the atacama desert there are like endemic species like elegant pink flamingos right and so it's it's a really stunning landscape in addition it's it's a landscape that is home to many people. There are tons of indigenous communities, 18 specifically, that live around the main salt flat where lithium is, is extracted from. Uh, lithium is suspended in, in brine underneath the salt flat and it's sucked out and arrayed on huge evaporation ponds to be concentrated and then shipped elsewhere to be further refined and then shipped you know, across oceans uh, to be manufactured into batteries. The issue here is that the process of extracting lithium affects uh, the the water system of this of this already water vulnerable environment, and has contributed to a lowering water table and a less uh, less accessible water. Not just for those indigenous communities, and also for the the habitats and ecosystems that that rely on that water. So it poses this you know very thorny dilemma in a way, which is that you know lithium extraction from this place. Which is part of you know these technologies to fight climate change is contributing to localized environmental degradation. I'll just you know sort of name a couple other pieces here. The other thing is that it's threatening um, indigenous territory and their collective rights to consent, which have not been at all anything like respected. So the communities have not been really asked like it, which they're supposed to be under international law. You know, is it okay if we extract lithium and and, and it's going to affect you in these in these ways? In addition, there's been really super exploitation of some of the workers at at the lithium installations. They've tried to organize um, and face retaliation by the corporations there. So it's a pretty multifaceted like socially and environmentally unjust situation. And activists there have actually called for a complete moratorium on new projects and even to just stop lithium mining so that science and regulators can kind of figure out exactly what the harms and risks are and how to better mitigate them. And so, you know, I think that activists around the world that are advocating for renewable energy transition and myself included should really consider that there might be some places where we shouldn't have lithium extraction, like the the ecosystems are just too vulnerable. And we can think on a case by case basis, because I do think we need some lithium. I don't know that we, you know, in my ideal typical scenario, we don't need as much as the IEA predicts, because that is all based on an individual passenger car, EV you know, idea of the transportation system, which I think we should reimagine, right? But it's a complex, you know, set of of ways that we might respond to this. We can be in solidarity with communities that are opposing projects. Um, we can think through on a case by case basis which projects get community consent and are least impactful, and we can also sort of think through the complexities of a global moment where the global north is trying to onshore mining after decades of offshoring these toxic extractive sectors to the global south. And that poses like new dilemmas too. Like, you know, we can ask the question, is it better for lithium extraction to take place in the U.S. so that, you know, the U.S. pays the social and environmental costs of its extraction rather than the global south. But then we immediately can complicate that by looking at where extraction is poised to take place in the U.S which is a project that will dramatically alter the environment and affect the rights of indigenous communities that live in Nevada, right? So it's sort of complex all the way down. It requires us to think deeply about each of these places, but also how they fit into the broader geopolitics and the green capitalist transition and what can be done to mitigate as much harm as possible as we create a new energy system.
0: Your book, Resource Radicals, focused on the Ecuadorian left. What were some of the divisions on the left in Ecuador when it came to the, the exploitation of the country's natural resources? Yeah,
2: I feel like my career is now hopping from one set of extraction related dilemmas to another. And so, in a way that I wouldn't have expected at the time, doing the research and, and writing for my book, Resource Radicals, kind of I think set me up to think about extraction as posing fundamental dilemmas for the left, actually, like, like, and that is, you know, given my political commitments, that's really like an underlying motivation, like, how should the left think about extraction, which on the one hand, to a certain degree is necessary, but on the other hand happens in such a horrendous way under capitalism, right? And so how can we kind of hold those two things together at the same time and think through what a left or socialist response might be to the to the problems posed by extraction? And in Ecuador, we saw this like really explode on the left, this whole question of, of what, what is to be done about resource extraction. What I went to Ecuador to, to explore um, what sort of propelled the project initially was the emergence and proliferation of a really militant anti-extractive movement in Ecuador, a social movement that uh, based in indigenous communities, based in the indigenous movement itself, uh, based in radical environmental groups that had come together to radically and militantly oppose all extraction, right? We, you know, oppose all oil, all new mining, and other forms of like mega development and big agribusiness projects as well. And it struck me that this was a fascinating and, and actually also novel position. So just to situate the listeners a bit, I started to research this in 2010, but it was really actually living in Ecuador earlier in, in 2008 that first kind of um, uh, exposed me to this radical anti-attractive position. Now this might not sound very novel. Like there's extinction rebellion. There's like there's Standing Rock. Um, you know there is the fight against the Keystone Pipeline. There's you know this position has actually become more general among the, the sort of environmental and climate left and, and, and indigenous rights movements, et cetera. But at that time, it was newer and more novel, and I thought demanded an explanation and also uh, an analysis of what it, it could achieve um, in, in terms of blocking tractor projects. So that is, that is why I went to Ecuador. And I learned you know quickly about how not only was there this novel militant anti-attractive movement that was opposing the expansion of of new oil and mining projects, in some cases effectively, but it also was um, the kind of product and the further trigger of a big debate within the left. It turned out that, you know the anti-attractive position was not shared by everyone on the left. And in fact, anti-extractivism itself as a kind of movement and a position had emerged out of tensions within the Ecuadorian left. These tensions were initially set off by a success story in a way, which was the arrival to power of a left-wing government for the first time, you know, during Ecuador's democracy. So Rafael Correa, uh, a self-described 21st century socialist, came to power, um, uh, after like, a you know, a decade of really intense social mobilization against neoliberalism, against austerity. So this is the big story of the pink tide, that of, of low left wing kind of government sweeping electoral victories across Latin America that your listeners might be familiar with. Um, and Rafael Correa was one of the, the big, you know, victories, and he won several reelections and was quite popular, and did quite a bit to reduce poverty and inequality and also um, invest more in social services and and public infrastructure. But he did so based on a commodity dependent, export oriented model of development. And the interesting sort of coincidence or conjuncture that resource radicals uh, is set during is on the one hand, the electoral victories of the left, the pink ties. And on the other hand, a massive dramatic shift in the global economy that we call the commodity boom. So between 2000 and 2014 there was a uh, huge increase in the demand for some of the for 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 many of the raw materials uh, that are the basis of global capitalism whether it's soy or timber or beef or copper or oil, right? All of these saw dramatic increases in demand and dramatic price increases as a result. This was mostly driven by industrialization in China and other emerging economies and This presented the Latin American left that had recently come to power in several contexts with an opportunity and also a risk. The opportunity was that they had much more money. The state coffers were much fuller in terms of spending money on social services and public infrastructure, which, by the way, has been a longstanding demand of social movements, the labor movement, et cetera. So they had the money to make good on campaign promises which made them popular. And that's why we saw so many reelections up until 2014 or so when the commodity crash happens and this reverberates and, and undermines the political popularity of the left throughout. It, that's not the only reason, but it is a major one. So they were riding this boom and it was a great opportunity in terms of, it, of state investment. On the other hand, resource extraction, as we just discussed, Poses a lot of environmental harms. Itself is is an indirect driver of of climate change through deforestation, and also just from an economics perspective, is an unsustainable basis for national economy because commodity markets are very volatile. They're the most volatile markets in general in terms of their price and, and demand structures, and obviously, you know, with every commodity boom, always comes a commodity bust, and it's very hard to sort of navigate that through policies when you are in the peripheries of global capitalism, right? When you have like few resources and not a huge tax base and and et cetera. So this is the dilemma that these left-wing governments found themselves in, but it is also the kind of origins of this militant anti-extractive movement, which took the left to task in this case, Korea, but there were some similar movements in other countries took the left to task for, you know, claiming to build something better, a new 21st century socialism, but instead reproducing this extractive model of development that movements traced all the way back to colonial conquest, right? And it was that set of policy, political, economic dilemmas that Resource Radical explores and tries to think through, like, you know, what are the different left positions on resource extraction? Historically, in Latin America and much of the global South, the position has been to nationalize extraction, to increase state control of it and popular and democratic and worker control of it, but to continue extraction in order to, you know, uh, kind of uh, redistribute the revenues from extraction instead of going to corporate profits. And so I wanted to show that, that um, anti-extractivism marked a break from that tradition and was a very much a product of these national, regional, and global conjunctures of, of the commodity boom and the left in power. And I think you know poses serious dilemmas, as you know, it's a theme of our of our episode today for the left. Like, what you know, should a left in power use resource extraction to benefit the social good and economic well being of poor and low income working class people, or should there be a rapid you know post extractive transition? in global South countries so that they don't have to rely on this economically and environmentally unsustainable model of development. And the answer that I came up with actually in in a way after writing the book, because I continue to reflect on this even more strongly after writing the book, is that this question can't be answered at the scale of Ecuador. That it really forces us to think about What would the changes at the regional and global level, what changes would need to happen so countries like Ecuador don't find themselves in this impossible position? Looking forward maybe a little bit to the future, reweaving those relationships of solidarity and internationalism for me is strategically essential. I think that the global supply chains of green technologies that have kind of framed our conversation could themselves be terrains of coalition building and social struggle and alliances between labor unions and indigenous communities, for example, across borders, that we might wanna look at those supply chains, not just as the sources of exploitation, oppression, and environmental harm, which they are, and profit-making, which they are, but also by that same token, as potential sites of popular self-activity and coalition making that goes across borders. And like, what if, we could actually organize across those supply chains. As I said, I don't think this is quite happening yet, though there are some interesting historical examples, surely, of, of workers and communities orienting to supply chains in that way. But I think that if we can reestablish those relation, North-South relationships that I think have been weakened over the years, we are in a better position to actually fight this economic and political struggle on the train of green technology supply chains.
0: Theoria Frankus, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thank you.